The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, Episode 91. Seattle is home to the world's first gas station, opened in 1907 on East Marginal Way. You can bet they weren't paying three fifty a gallon. One, two, three. I'll show you Paris in the morning. I'll show you London afternoon. If you feel your Dublin heart is burning, yeah, well you don't have to worry 'cause we're going there soon. And you don't have to worry 'cause we're going there soon. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and whether this is your first time listening or you're a wily old veteran of this podcast, I want to say thank you for joining us today and making us the number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. And no matter how many times you've listened, today we've got a great interview for you one that I'm selfishly very excited about because the two people are living the type of life that many people, including myself, aspire to lead. Warren and Betsy Talbot, authors of What We Learned About Love by Traveling the World and founders of MarriedWithLuggage.com. Warren and Betsy, thanks so much for joining us today and welcome. Hey, Travis. It's great to be here. Excited to talk to you. And I am excited to have both of you on the other line. It's always fun to have two people to talk to, doubling our pleasure here. And today, we're going to touch on a few different topics, guys, all of which I'm personally trying to figure out myself. And I know a lot of the listeners are as well. And Warren and Betsy are going to tell us some of their best tips for traveling, working, and living as a couple, something I drastically need to know, um, and still keeping their sanity. They're going to tell us how to, quote unquote, retire by the age of 40 and start traveling the world, and how they're able to not only travel, but also have a home base, a place in Spain that they can come back to when they want, which is right now my biggest struggle of being location independent and also my biggest dream. So, Guys, you are experts in a lot of fields here. Tons of wisdom over there on that side of the computer screen. So let's just start out a little bit with your story and this idea of retiring by the age of 40. (laughs) Well, I don't know that I would say that we're necessarily retired, but we did redefine the way that we wanted to live. We decided that life was too short to keep going at the rate we were going and waiting another 20 or 30 years to retire because my brother had just had a heart attack. A good friend of ours had a brain aneurysm. We were seeing that people in their 30s could have serious life-threatening illnesses. And we thought, you know, if we're going to make this thing happen, we should do it now. Yeah, we have to jump on it and make our lives, create the lives that we want. There's no telling the way that we live and that we love a full and rich life. And so if we don't know how long we're going to be around, we're going to enjoy every moment of it that we can. And so that's what started the whole plan. We woke up one day after asking ourselves, you know, if you You, knew you weren't going to make it until your 40th birthday, what would you change about your life right now? And for us, that was travel. We were 37. We put a two-year plan into place and we sold everything, saved a ton of money and took off. Wow. So, So this was a very conscious decision. And also, I think the important point you hit on too was that you planned to do it. It wasn't a midlife crisis epiphany, boom, I'm quitting my job today, I'm moving to Costa Rica. It was, all right, let's make a conscious decision to do this, but if we put some plans in place and do some things for these next few years, we're going to be much better set up than if we did it right away. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we love the idea of taking off and exploring. We were originally just going to be gone for a couple years. That was originally the plan. Leave for a year, maybe two years. But let's see if let's just begin the process. Since most people don't have a clue how much it costs to travel around the world, especially back in 2008 when we started all this, we were lost. So we put some plans, some ideas as far as guesses, what it would cost to travel, and just began the process of accumulating money. I had a job that I absolutely loved. I really enjoyed what I did. Betsy had her own company. And so we weren't running away from the lives that we had. We wanted to be really methodical and make sure that what we were running towards was going to be something fantastic and everything that we dreamed it would be. And I I do have to say that we had done a lot of work over the years previous to that to sort of make our life into something that we really loved. I mean, we were very conscious about lifestyle issues and and places that we wanted to live, the people we wanted to hang out with, personal goals. And I think by doing that, it helped us to see the bigger life that we could have by really following our dreams. And then we went about it the way we do everything, which is really excited, (laughs) really adventurous, but totally nerdy. (laughs) Yeah, deadlines and project plans and Excel spreadsheets. It was everything I loved. Oh, I knew we would be getting along. That is right up my alley. So what was your lifestyle like before you moved on to this next phase of life? You said, you know, you were methodical about figuring out what your lifestyle was going to be like beforehand, and that helped kind of make the transition. But what were you, where were you guys living? What type of life did you have? Were you out, you know, gallivanting, spending a lot of money? Were you more frugal by nature anyway? What what were you doing before you made the break? But right before we left, we were living in Seattle and we were living the life that we had dreamed about. It was, we were living in the middle of the city. We were able to walk to nine different ethnic restaurants. That was kind of a weird rule. We talk about that a lot in the book <laughs> and how that was something that kind of brought us back together of sculpting and shaping the life that we wanted. So we had this beautiful life in Seattle with a really close group of friends. A great group of friends. And we were able to live the way we wanted to every single day. And I think that was the thing that kind of you know, spurred us forward. But we were certainly spending uh, a large chunk of cash. Oh my gosh, we ate out a lot. We went to happy hour all the time with our friends. I mean, we, I wouldn't say that we bought a lot of stuff necessarily, but we did spend a lot of money on going out and entertainment and things like that. Yeah, I remember in our first book that we wrote, it's called Dream Save Do. And in that book, we, we document kind of this process of how we saved up the money to go on this trip. And in the first part of that, I remember sitting down with Betsy and getting her to try to guess how many times and how much money we spent a month eating out. <laughs> and it was obscene. It was our number one expense. You had our mortgage, and then just under our mortgage was how much we were spending on just eating out, just hanging out with friends, going out to dinner. I mean, you know, just Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays. It doesn't matter what night. We were out enjoying ourselves and living truly a fantastic experience. We currently spend less money every month to live than we spent on food and entertainment Correct. in our old lifestyle. It's amazing when you actually sit down and decide, I'm going to look at where my money is going, what you find out. And for you guys who are eating out, for other people, it, it could be a variety of things and you don't really know. You might have an inkling, oh yeah, we do that a lot, but you, you don't know the real numbers. And then you sit down and you think, wow. like <laughs> It is scary. <laughs> so you did have to make then a change when you decided, okay, you know, where do we want to be at 40? you know, it is, we do want to be traveling. We want to be doing that. You did have to make quite a change then from the life before and start saying, we're going to really save up some money. It wasn't something, oh, we're making so much. We can just save a little bit of what we're doing. It was, it was pretty drastic change then. It was a drastic change, but it was an easy change because what we said is 
what do we want to do with our lives? And we set that as our priority. Once we set a priority in our life and a deadline, then everything just gets judged against that. Would I rather go out tonight and spend $100 on dinner? Or would I rather spend a day on the road enjoying the life that we're creating? One of the jokes in our neighborhood, there were several Thai food restaurants. And we would say, do we want to go out for Thai food tonight? Or do we want to go have Thai food in Thailand? That's a pretty easy answer uh, for most people. If <laughs> it they've was had, for us? Yeah. Yes. If they've had Thai food in Thailand or been to Thailand and know how great that country is. Yeah, that's a pretty easy answer. That's a really cool way to putting it. And we're going to talk about relationships a little later, but it kind of just permeates through all of your whole story and all of the travel story of someone who is a couple because you don't make decisions on your own. You you constantly make decisions. So when you guys made that decision, what, and I don't need anyone to throw anyone else under the bus here, but if it happens, that's great. Uh, makes for a good podcast. But was it easier for one of you than than another? Was it was it kind of like, hey, we're both on board and it just worked out well, or or was there a bit of a struggle there in the beginning? Well, for the decision, I think we were both really in alignment. Now, there were aspects of the plan going all the way through that were harder for one of us than the other. So, right. for instance, when it came uh, down to getting rid of all of our stuff, you know, in the beginning, we weren't going to get rid of our stuff. We were going to rent our place out. All that changed. I had a lot of trouble letting go with stuff. Warren did not. But I had a lot of trouble letting go of my career. It was a real challenge to give that up and to walk away from something that I thought identified who I was as a person. So I think it was good for us that we didn't freak out about the same things. We were able to talk each other off the ledge at the appropriate (laughs) moments. (laughs) But we were both really gung-ho about the decision from the moment it was made. The next day, we were making plans, deadlines. We we were good to go. Yeah, Married with Luggage was born the day after the decision was made. We, you know, got the website and started immediately. Uh, building what we have today. Wow. And so for you, you mentioned you were originally going to rent out your place. And I think that that's probably a decision that some people are at if they're at this point as well, where they say, yeah, well, that's right. We're at the point where we've decided we want to travel more. We're going to give up our careers, whatever. Should we rent our place or should we get rid of our stuff? You know, and again, selfishly, I'm at this kind of stage as well. Like, oh, should what should we do? You know, should we make a clean break? Should we try to hold on to this? What was the key for you guys deciding? Well, we're not going to rent out our place. We're going to actually sell stuff and be free of that and go on our way. Well, there were a couple of things. Um, first, when we made this decision, it was September of 2008. And if you are a, a history aficionado, you will know that that is when Wall Street fell and the ship Lehman the Brothers, band. yeah. Lehman Brothers <laughs> went under that summer. Yep. So, so we were and the housing market went out and we thought, okay, if we rent our house out, we're going to have to pay substantially more every month to make up for the mortgage. So we're, we either bleed every month a little bit or we bleed a whole lot at once and, and sell it. And this is an example of where we're different, right? Betsy worried about the law. And for me, it was much more a function of, I thought I would just worry about it constantly and it would detract from the life that we were creating. I wanted this life where we jumped out and kind of went and went into the middle of nowhere and I had no worries. But if I was thinking about that and someone was to write an email and say that my boiler just went out, you know, I have to deal with this and I have water all over the house, I would be freaking out about that. And I know that about myself. So knowing that helped me to make the decision a little easier. So when you put the financial and the the worry concerns together, you end up with a really easy decision for the two of us. That's so interesting that you say that because a lot of people don't ever think of that. They think of the financial side, right? You know, you can put out all these formulas and have all these spreadsheets and figure out, oh, by month 14, we're going to be at the same amount as you know if we sell our house and this and that. But the mental stress and energy, you can't overlook that. And most people do because 
I don't know. They haven't been in this situation. That certainly happened with me when I first went went away and decided to rent our house. And luckily, for the last couple of years, we've had very good renters in. But before that, it was constant. It was, you know, I get an email like the doorknob fell off, and I'm thinking. <laughs> Okay. Well, I'm in Japan. What do you want me to do yeah, about it? Um, you can you? I'll pay for a new doorknob. You know, take it out of the rent. Can you put a doorknob on? You know, it was just. But then it'd be stressed. I'd be stressed out because I think, well, what if? What if they can? Or what if they won't? Do I have to hire someone? It's just. It's insane the things that happen that you never expect would happen. So I'm really glad you brought that point up, Warren, because so many people don't really think about that or think it's not going to be an issue. And they think, well, I can live these kind of two lives because I'll be over there and everything's going to be fine at home. A lot of times it probably won't. I think there's also a function of you have to ask yourself, how much do you want this trip to change your life? If you absolutely know that no matter what you want to come back, then having the house there and you know that has to factor into it. But if you're leaving yourself open, and this is kind of what we did, we wanted to have just an an uncharted territory in front of us to allow ourselves the freedom to do whatever may come and to say yes to whatever that was. I mean, here we are, we've been traveling for over four years now. We you know, originally had planned to come back to the US. We decided not to. We bought a house in Spain. I mean, there's all this stuff that has opened up that we never could have imagined. Had we had the house still in the US, I don't know if we would have given ourselves the freedom and permission to do that. I also don't think that we would have been as comfortable spending the money to start the business and yep. and do all those things because I would have been worried about needing to have more of a nest egg for the house right. in case something went wrong. And so again, that's just us. But I think you have to know yourselves and then talk to your partner as you go through it. And that helps you to work through these things that are going to weigh on your mind much more than the financial aspect. Yeah. Another great point, Betsy, that you brought up was the idea of that nest egg. And if you have these possessions at home, uh, especially a house, but there's other things that you could have at home that kind of weigh you down that you think, well, I need something in case that goes wrong. Obviously, the house is the big one. That that does prohibit you from then saying, hey, I'm going to take this leap and, and do something else because I need $5,000, $10,000, $15,000, whatever it is in the bank because if our boiler goes or something like that, we need the money there. And no one wants big things to happen, but you know it's inevitable if you have a home that eventually something <laughs> will go wrong, right? No one has right. the perfect home. Even new condos at some point, they'll go wrong. So that's a really good point. And back to your point too, Warren, I, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, we are going to come back to the United States. And so they might want to hold on to stuff. But have you found talking with people who come to your site and other travelers in this net? that most people who say, yeah, we're going to come home at some point, end up not coming home? Is that, you know, could you even put a percentage of the people you've met that that say, yeah, well, we're going to come home in a year or two, like you guys kind of said, and then, whoops, no, no, we're not. We're going to stay out on the road. (laughs) Well, I think some people do that. I do think a lot of people do go back, but they don't ever seem to go back in the way that they were before. So, you know, we stay friends with these people on Facebook and, you know, they they move to a different place or they they change careers. I mean, one guy went from being an accountant to a chef and like your your whole (laughs) lifestyle changes when you do something like this. So I think that even if you do come back, your life, because of the experiences that you've had and because of letting yourself go, I think your life might be different anyway. And you may not want to be in that same house with that same furniture in that same neighborhood. What we've realized by traveling is that all of us have different desires, different ways we travel, different expenses, how much we're going to spend, different ways we want to live our life in the future and how we want to move forward. But accepting that and realizing that is kind of what we've seen across the plethora of people that we've met who have done long-term travel. 
Yeah, and one of the ways that that you guys moved forward was deciding to purchase a home in Spain. And I definitely want to talk about that because (laughs) I just recorded a podcast with my buddy Jason about the real truth behind location independence. And one of the things that people don't really talk about, one of the huge pains about quote-unquote coming home is that if you're location independent, a lot of times home means where you grew up, but you don't have a home. You don't have anywhere to be. And, right. you know, I, I've, I told you guys yesterday when we chatted briefly, you know, I was recording and people who have been listening over the last couple of weeks know, you know, I've been recording stuff from like a 10 by 10 bedroom. I've been in my childhood bedroom of my parents. that's freezing cold, you know, <laughs> and my sister-in-law's all these different places. I'm very happy and I'm very thankful for them letting me stay there and do those things there. But it's obviously not a very conducive environment for working and for me and Heather to just enjoy life when we're home. And so we've already said, you know, once we come back from this five month Southeast Asia trip, we we definitely need to figure out a home base, whether that is something renting a place when we come back to the Philadelphia area, renting a place somewhere else in the US, renting a place somewhere else in the world. But we want to have that home base because the quote unquote completely nomadic lifestyle, I don't think is what we what we want. We want somewhere to come back to every once in a while and say, all right, this is ours. We can relax. We can do all this. So how were you guys able to do it? Because for a lot of people, it's it doesn't seem very feasible because they think, well, I have to then have a home somewhere. And, and like we've already talked about, worry about rent, worry about renters yeah. and things like that. How were you able to get a home base that's yours in in a cool area and just talk me through the process of the decision-making and everything that went into that. Uh, Well, I'll just say, first of all, this comes down to the lesson that we learned in the very beginning when we started making these lifestyle modifications is what do you want your life to look like? So yes, we want a home base, but we need a place that we can walk away from because we do travel. We can't worry about big grounds that we have to care for and things like that. So that was always really top of mind. And one thing that's really good about Warren and my relationship is that we're very open about those kinds of things. And we talk things through. So we're always really on the same page about that. So we already had that kind of an idea going in. And I think that what happened was, was while we were, um, we started talking, we've been traveling a little over three years, it's about a year ago, we started kind of thinking about the idea of getting a place, just mainly because of writing. We write books, we've written four books now, and they've been written anywhere from pubs to uh, a (laughs) hotel room in Thailand. I mean, it is challenging places to write. And so we needed a place that we could kind of do our writing, get inspired and put out the work, the better work that we want to do. And so what happened was we started talking about it. And a year ago, we went on a 300 mile hike in Turkey. And that gave us a month completely disconnected, just the two of us just hanging out, walking. We had a lot of time to talk. And uh, in the course of that, we realized that many years ago, when we were starting to plan, we had saved enough money as kind of our Our re-entry fund is what we called it, the money that we would live on when we went back to the U.S. But several years ago, we also decided we were never going back to the U.S. That was kind of our decision. And so we had this money sitting there. We could take that money and apply it to a home somewhere. And that was what we talked about really, you know, a large portion of the conversation for 30 days was this idea. And so we had the money, we had the idea, and then we just had to talk through it and talk to each other about what was important. So I think from that point, we just started thinking, what kind of places, where can we live that A, we could get, you know, uh, an affordable uh, property and B, that we could easily walk away from to go travel for months at a time if we needed to. And 
preferably see something that we could rent out when we're not there to help make up some of the expense of owning the house. And it it has all of the qualities that we wanted and and the ability to walk and the ability to have great food and it has to have good wine. That was just, these are just the critical (laughs) elements of life. The most critical, right? (laughs) Everything else can be fine as long as there's a nice bottle of wine. Yeah. So we just started looking, really. It was just kind of a, a radar thing for us. Like, okay, this is what we've decided we wanted. We don't know if we're going to find this in six months or six years, but we're just going to start looking. And I think that's what all couples do is they should have those conversations in advance and be able to say, now we're in agreement. We're in alignment as a couple of what we want, what where our priorities are. When it happens, it'll happen. And uh, a few months later, we found the right village, little whitewashed village in Spain and that's where we are. I have to tell the funny story about how this happened. All right, fine. Def- definitely, <laughs> so, you have to tell the funny story. <laughs> we came to, right after the hike in Turkey, we came to do a house sit, which is one of the ways that we see the world. We can talk about more later if you want. But we came here to Spain, and the day before the homeowners were leaving, they had a little party, and they invited all of their friends and neighbors. Yep. Um, we're out drinking mulled wine in the sunshine, celebrating Christmas under these, these blue skies, talking to some of the neighbors. I started talking to this very attractive redhead who um, happens to live in the area. And Betsy looked at me, and I think what Betsy really hoped was that I was flirting with I her. really did, because it would have been cheaper. Yeah, it, <laughs> but it turns out she's the real estate agent, and I was just fascinated, because I wanted to talk all about real estate in the area and Spain and what it's like to live here and how hard is it and everything. And I think Betsy just was hoping that all she had to deal with was an affair. So, so the thing <laughs> is, this is how we always do at a party. We always split up and talk to other people because we're together all the time. So so later that afternoon, after everyone had gone home and we were you know, getting ready for bed, he said, by the way, I made an appointment for us to go look at property on Friday. And so a few days later, we went and started looking at property. We fell in love with one and we're currently recording from there now. So you had, had you ever been to this area of Spain before that, that nope. house it? Okay. So it was, well, yeah, we had arrived a week before. I mean, okay. it was almost no, a week. No, no, it was, it was almost a week. <laughs> it was a few days. Yeah. Okay. We've been here a few days and that's it. I mean, literally we bought a house less than a week after arriving in this area. Yes. yes. Okay. Well, that is that is an awesome story for sure. And <laughs> you decided you're going to get a place, but you didn't know where. Did you have, and, and it kind of happened serendipitously for you, like, oh, we like this this region. But did you have ideas of places you might look? So for someone else out there who's like, all right, well, I don't have a ton of money to spend. And you don't have to divulge how much you did spend or if you want to, you can. It's up to you. But if someone's saying, all right, I want a home base, but I need it to be fairly cheap and I need you know, kind of all the qualities that you mentioned, able to maybe be rented out, good lifestyle, good wine, of course, things like that. Were there areas that you thought, okay, this is where we've been before or our friends have been that we might start looking if someone else was to to want to maybe look, where where could they look? I think the most important things of all that, and you know, in our book, Married with Luggage, we talk about the idea of what saved our marriage. And what we did is we stepped back and made a list of things that we wanted that were most important to us. So before you think about regions, before we thought about anything, we made a list of what were the things that were important. And again, that list can't be underestimated because it is so critical to agree on that before you start putting pins in a map. Yeah, because even if you buy it and it's in this perfectly great location that you can rent out and all that, if it's an investment that you're not in love with, you're going to hate yourself for buying it. So so I would say, you know, make that list like Warren said, but also look for, you know, uh, look at Airbnb rentals in places that, that you might be interested in and see, you know, who's renting, who's going, you know, um, what the lifestyle looks like there, what people are doing and I think that's an easy way to kind of pinpoint a place. And it does narrow it down with that list, right? So if I pick up places that have great wine, you know, that are outside of the U.S., 
So you're, you've got a few regions that are in your mind, and then they need to speak Spanish because that was another one of our priorities. Yeah, we don't know any other languages. <laughs> and, and so, and it, we and we wanted to learn it. We wanted to become uh, fluent in it. And, you know, we needed the ability. And so it's just a long list of things that Spain just happened to fit. There are other places in the world that I would love to live. Asia is a great place. I love Southeast Asia, but there, I, I can't get great wine on my budget. And so that rules that out, but I can go there. So all of these things kind of narrowed it down, like someplace like Argentina, Chile, or here. It just so happened we happened to stop in Spain, fall in love, and left our hearts here. Yeah, fantastic story. And I want to get into a little bit. I, I think that's really important that you guys mentioned, make the checklist first, because so many people do look at maps, right? Or regions or places they've been and they just, you know, they, they've traveled through and so they've maybe really liked it there. And I'm, I do the same thing and I think, oh, I could live here. I could live here. I could live here. But we've only ever been there for a week or two weeks or what have you. And, you know, probably we could live there and we would be fine. But would it, as you mentioned, Betsy, would it be something that, you know, a year down the road or two years down the road, we were really in love with. Maybe not because, you know, I hadn't thought it all through. It's that honeymoon period of being in a place and thinking, well, this is this is great. It might not tick the boxes that you need. And it might be great in that season. So we arrived oh, in December point. and it was absolutely gorgeous and the sun's shining and it's, you know, it's 70 degrees every day, you know, and that was perfect. And then August, you know, it's 105, 107, you know, and so you have to be ready for that. And all those other things that you enjoy about about where you're living, those things need to shine at that moment. What then with the process of actually buying the house? Because you might be the first people on, I'm trying to rack my brain here, that, that own a home in another, you know, a lot of people rent or house it or stay for extended periods of time. But I can't think of anyone else who's come on and actually bought a home in another country what was that like? And and for people who, I mean, I know we could go, this could be an hour long podcast on its own, I'm sure. But what can people expect? I know each country is different, but even just talking specifically about Spain, and maybe we can pull out some generalities. It can't be easy, right? Unless unless Warren flirts with, you know, the other real estate agent, and she just does all the work. Well, the, the bank manager was a man, so I took care of that one. <laughs> It's you guys a, had it covered. We did. We had everything we needed, you know. I, I think that, it, honestly, this process is far easier. I've bought, we've bought and sold a lot of homes in the U.S., you know, kind of just as you, we've been nomadic for decades and moving around. Decades? You make it sound like we're really old. I was right? going to say, Warren, you guys aren't that old. I know that. <laughs> Decades. Right, fine. Bought a we'll house at three years. years old. Yeah. That, yeah. That's true. We'll go with 20 years. So in the U.S., it's a really complex process. Here, we go to the bank. They own the property, and we say, we'd like to buy this this house. And they said, okay. And this is all in Spanish. So the hardest thing about this transaction is it's all done in Spanish. So the bank manager asked me how much I want to spend, and I tell him how much I want to spend. And he says, okay. And I'm like, wow. And Betsy immediately thinks. The the word for uh, thousand in Spanish is mile. Is yeah. that right? Mil, mil. And he said that. And the minute he said that, I was like, is that the right word? Did we just offer way more money, like exponentially more money than I than thought? we should have. <laughs> you know? and, and so it's a verbal contract, essentially. You tell him how much and he says, okay. And he goes off and he checks with some people. And a couple of days later, you get we got a call and he said, okay, the house is yours. You know, And then I think it was less than three weeks later that you sign the final contracts and you're done. And I mean, that's it. You have to you transfer some cash. 
to them. You put down a deposit. There's no real idea of a of an inspection here. You know, you kind of look at the house and you can bring in people if you want, but there's no there's no inspection process that exists. So you kind of have to know what you want. The house had been vacant. It's a hundred year old house, but it had been vacant for five years. And so there was some work that we knew needed to be done. And so you estimate all that out and that's what we got for the house. But then you have to get a an ID number in Spain yeah. and then you have to give them money. That's yeah, really it was it. it was really the simplest thing that we've done since we've been in Spain. It was easier to buy the house than it was to get the electricity turned on at the house. Yes. I'm, I'm, t- I'm not kidding. Yeah, the house took 30 days to buy and the electricity took 45 days to turn on. Yeah. Wow. So can you have a mortgage? Do you have a mortgage or were, was the house that you bought just paid for, you know, straight up? Hey, here's the money. Here's how much we told you. Boom. Now it's ours. Yeah, we don't have a mortgage. We, nah, we pay yeah. for it. Yeah, okay. it's a, you know, so for us, it's relatively easy. It is possible to get a mortgage. It's a, like it is in the U.S., it complicates the process significantly because you're going to have to prove more things. But you do need to have a Spanish bank account. Getting a Spanish bank account requires you to go through some hoops. You have to get the right forms and the right documents. And because we're extranjeros, so uh, foreigners, we have to have certain uh, documents associated with that. But yeah, the process is all pretty smooth. It's funny, you can actually buy a house before you become a resident. So, you know, that is the probably the biggest gap. You don't even have to become a resident. Yeah. You can buy a house and not be a resident. It, it's it's okay. But one thing I will say about our process is that this was a repossessed home. I don't know what the word is in Spanish, but it's essentially a repossessed home. Someone yeah. defaulted. And so the bank owned it. And talking with other people who live here that are from other countries that have bought homes, I do think that this is the best way we could have bought a home. Agreed. Because we are just dealing with a bank. Many of these homes are old and they have, um, the owners are sons and daughters and, and nieces and nephews. And so you may have 15 owners of a house that you have to deal with if you're trying to buy it. Everyone will find different interesting things. It just so happens that our process was incredibly smooth. Yeah, that's that's excellent. And then for you, you all did it by speaking the language you know, on your own. You didn't bring in translators. You didn't bring in anyone to help you out. We brought in someone to help us with the paperwork elements okay. um, and to coordinate with because, well, for two things. One, we actually left the country while the house was closing. So because we can only stay in Europe for 90 days at a time right now, we left and went to Morocco and we had someone that helped us go through and kind of do the what we would call the closing in America. Right. Take all the forms to the government. And here there are there are a lot of forms that you have to take to a variety of different places. So she took and filed all the right forms and did all that. And we did all the initial contract negotiations and everything. And then she took it took it from there. Wow. And have you heard from others who may have bought homes in different countries? Are there specific countries like with you with Spain, it, w- it worked pretty well. And I-, I love that you said Betsy too, kind of the differentiation between, you know, repossessed and it's owned by the bank versus, you know, having to deal with with the family or a, a quote unquote regular sale or something like that. Have you heard from others about countries that are very, very hard to buy homes in versus countries that are easier? Do you have any kind of insight into that? Or do you kind of just know the Spain market, really? We've looked into a variety of places. We've got friends that have bought in a variety of countries, primarily in Europe, although we do know people that have bought and sold in uh, a few countries down in South America. And so I think it all is individual. You can hear nightmare stories in every single country. Well, it's the same in the United States, exactly. really. Yeah. I mean, I think it all comes down to making sure that, uh, again, you you fall in love with this. That's why the checklist is so important because you will be, you will go through a trial no matter where you are because you're in a foreign country. I mean, 
I can't tell you how frustrating it was to have the 45 days for the electricity because we had work that needed to be done on the house so we could move in and a contractor can't work without electricity. (laughs) And so, you know, little things like, well, not little things, but things like that happen. And so you really have to love where you are and expect those things to happen because you're in a different language, different customs, different everything. And I think the history of the country really you start to understand and appreciate how that affects the house buying process. So if you understand Spain's history under under Franco and this particular region and how they reacted to that under 70 years of dictatorship, it doesn't seem like it would impact it. But what happens is, is that all these families, you know, were struggling to get by. So they would all move into their homes and then they would deed off bedrooms to people. So you can have a three bedroom house that is owned by six people and you can buy two of the bedrooms and you could legally live in a house and someone else owns another bedroom in your house. And they may live there, they may not. They may have to get in the, the bedroom through a ladder, as we know of one house in the neighborhood. That's the world that you live in. So what happens is all these weird historical elements, cultural elements, tradition, all of them play into the, the place that you're going to buy and how it's going to impact your process. I, I think that it comes down to the fact that in the U.S., most people don't live in houses that are hundreds of years old yeah. because our, our country is just not that old. So you come to a place like this where there have been generations of families that have lived in the same house and you realize how you could have 15 heirs, um, you know, yeah. who, who are currently that you have to negotiate with to buy this this house, you know, and it's just something that we don't normally run across in the United States. Yeah. When we were getting our electricity turned on, one of the reasons it took so long is because the electricity contract was still in the, basically the guy who owned the home in 1930 some odd. They wanted him to come in in order to sign a piece of paper to say that he no longer lived there. Well, he died in like 1962 or something. <laughs> and so the neighbors, all the neighbors, all the people that we've gotten to know, the, the uh, locals, all of them are telling this story and they're trying to explain to the people, the electric company, that the guy died in 1962 and they knew him and so these things all become just funny stories after you're after done with after the, the frustration. <laughs> but that that does bring another point is when you do go to a place like this, if you meld in with the community rather than remaining in an expat community, if you really do try to be part of the local culture, I think that especially as Americans, we w- we're a little bit overwhelmed at the kindness that we have been shown and the welcome welcoming into the community. Right. It really is like a family in this little village, and I've just been overwhelmed with that. And I I think about other people who've maybe moved into sort of an enclave of just expats. And I think that's a really bad move if you really want to enjoy the kind of life that you can enjoy in another country. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. The idea that you're in this small town village removed from expat communities. Are Are you guys the only expats there? No, no, there is an expat community. It's Spain, some, of course. Yeah, and so we're in southern Spain, so there are some okay. grants around. But um, in the village itself, we have a village of about 500 people. There's a, maybe two or three other expats here in the village, and everyone else lives out in kind of the countryside in the campo. Yeah, most okay. people who come here, they, they build these bigger estates sort of out in the, you know, out in the countryside. Yeah. You've talked about a, a few of the... Um, you know, travails of, of getting the home. The electricity is the big one. I don't know if there's any other ones. If you want to speak to just maybe some things that people would probably have to be cognizant of. I like your overall general theme, though, of just be aware that things are not going to operate the way you expect. And and that, that goes, that happens in the U.S. as well. You know, you go to buy a home, all of a sudden things don't operate. But, you know, in a foreign country, I think a lot of times we sit there and think, oh, well, it's because I'm in Spain and this is taking so long or this is happening. Really, it's probably just going to happen anywhere you are. So I like the idea that you guys said you just have to 
realize that you're you're doing something in a different country and it's worth it and you have to fall in love with it, which kind of puts, you know, okay, the electricity's not on for 45 days, but we're going to be here for 20 years. Let's put it in perspective a little bit. Right. Did you have other things that happened that crept up that you weren't expecting? <laughs> the first, we were we were getting ready to move in, and we had gone to Norway to speak at a conference, and we were coming back, and it was going to be our first night in the house. <laughs> we were so excited. It wasn't completely done, but it was done enough. We and had one bedroom that was ready for us. We had the bed. bed delivered. We had the refrigerator that was going to be delivered the day we got there. I mean, we were so excited to get into the place. And then we show up, and the next, like, we slept there that night. It was so romantic, wonderful. Oh, my God, we have a house in Spain. We forgot to buy blah, sheets, blah, blah, so we slept blah. in our... Uh, yeah, we slept in, in sleeping, sleeping bags. bags. That but was still, funny. it didn't matter. It was on a bed. And then uh, the very next day, this house has been here for 100 years. So is the house next to it. The next day, they started tearing down the house next to it um, and just got, you know, with hand tools, of course. And they're out there destroying the house so that they could rebuild it. And I'm thinking 100 years and you decide the day after we move in. And so they were constructing for how many days? You you had it timed out. It's like 135 days. 135 days straight of construction, six days a week, all day long, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And Welcome so, to the neighborhood. Exactly. Yeah. But that could happen anywhere. But I would say what's specific to Spain is probably like, you know, you have to get used to the to the different attitude. They have full siesta here. So from two to five every day or from 145 to 515 or from, you know, 142 to whatever, it just... They they go off and they close the shops and everything closes down and it's really quiet. And so if you need to buy anything, if you need to do anything, if you know you need a nail, you're going to have to do it and remember that. And the first few months we kept forgetting and we would walk out at 2.15 and everything would be closed. Well, in Sundays, everything's closed. Everything's closed on Sundays. And so you get used to it, but your lifestyle starts to change and accordingly in order to embrace uh, the culture that you're living in. And what are some of the really cool things that you guys have been able to do? Because you have now ingrained yourself in that community. As you mentioned, it's you, you've done it in a way that you didn't want to live in the huge expat communities. You wanted to do it where you became a part of the community. I'm sure it's been difficult at times, but the rewards that you've reaped have probably been really, really great. What are some of those? If someone's kind of on the fence, they're thinking, all right, that does sound great, but of course I'm I'm scared to do it or I'm nervous to do it, you know, or I don't speak the language that well, so of course in the you know, the first 6 months it's going to be incredibly hard. What are some of the rewards that you've gotten from just being a part of that community that other people wouldn't have gotten if they didn't choose to do it like you did it? So I uh, one easy example is yesterday I was at the at the store. It's a tiny little tienda and as I was in there buying um you know a bottle of wine the lady who works there we talk you know when I go in there my Spanish is improving slowly but when she was in there she was pleading with me she said I'm so glad you're back because we were away for a while I'm so glad you're back would you mind spending time with my son he's you know he's trying to learn English he needs it for school he needs to improve and she was almost in tears begging me to help her son with English and of course, I'm going to help him with English, you know, so we have a like after this call, I'm literally going to meet with him for a couple hours and we're going to meet every week and I'm going to help him with his English and then he'll help me with my Spanish. And so that is one of the very small things. And I feel like I get so much more out of it than I'm able to give back. Well, and everyone in the community has really rallied behind us. I remember right after we got here, we were having all the trouble with the electricity. Yeah. And our neighbor down the street, his name is Jacinto, and his son is also named Jacinto. But he, um, he spoke a little, you know, a little bit of English as well. Yeah. And he said, I will send Jacinto with you to go uh, work this all out. He'll go with you. And this boy, he doesn't 
He doesn't know, know us. us. Uh, you know, and, and he spent almost a day with you driving just, around, yeah. going to the place, doing, I mean, the the welcoming that we've gotten just because we come here, we try to be part of the community, we try to speak, we go to the fiestas, we we interact with the people here, and it's just made such a difference. I mean, I really feel a part of this community, and yeah. we just came back from two months away in Portugal. We went to the market on Wednesday to see everyone, yeah. and it was like a big welcome home, and I mean, it was just amazing to have people come up and ask about us. Yeah, you just spend your time, and so you're getting the chance. It, it's that one thing that when you travel full-time, if there's one thing that you will miss, and it, everybody who's traveled full-time, you, you may know this as well, you miss that sense of community, that that belonging, those friends that you see on a regular basis and be able to hang out with, and just a sense of trust and someone you can lean on. And I find that that's something that we're happen- that's happening here, but it's happening in another language, in another culture. So we're learning all these things, and we're being given the time to do it. And I love that. Until you guys just said that, I never even realized... I, I realized it when I was there, but since I've been back, I never realized how I felt about the little community we lived in Japan as well. Because again, we were the only foreigners up until our friends in the second year moved in the apartment above us. But everything we did was in that community. And, you know, we stuck out like a sore thumb, of course. <laughs> but it was the little things like going to the markets and watching the kids play tennis and having them come and ask me to play tennis. Like You would not get that if you're traveling through Japan, obviously, because you wouldn't, you know, you probably wouldn't even travel through the town that I lived in in any way, shape or form. And <laughs> it is just an amazing experience that can't be replicated unless you do kind of, I, I want to say the hard work. It's not work, but unless you put yourself in the position to do that, and that comes with saying it's going to be difficult. I mean, there were times like you guys mentioned with the electricity or, you know, we wouldn't get the mail to our house and we couldn't figure out why. And it was two months later, this package finally shows up. Still don't know why, right? But <laughs> that happens. And the, you have to deal with that in order to kind of get those benefits that happen, you know, down the road. What is your travel schedule like now? Because you have this home base, but you're still, that doesn't mean you're you're bunked down there and hunkered in like, we're never leaving. You still go out a ton, right? You guys are always traveling. We've actually been away more than we've been here since we bought the house. And, but now we're here for a while. We have decided that we are going to get residency in Spain. And so that is a, uh, yeah, talk to us in a few months as to, uh, <laughs> things that have gone, uh, good or bad, but we're in the process of applying for that. We will have you back on the show to do one about how to get residency in a foreign country. This is great. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Yeah, so so that's going to take several months to go through. I'm I'm quite sure about that. Yeah, so we're going to go through and we're in, pro- we're in the process of applying. So sometime next year, we know we'll be heading out again. We love to hike. We want to do a few long term hikes. We've got a few countries and identified as far as possibilities. And then we've got we need to head to the U.S. Our families are. They haven't seen us in a few years. They're ready to say hello. Yeah, we've only been back to the U.S. once since we started traveling uh, in, 2010. in 2010. So uh, my mom is um, demanding a visit. <laughs> Hey guys, because we had such a great time with Warren and Betsy and because we've had so much good information from them, we are going to cut this interview into two parts. And part two is going to be all about relationships and how they handle their relationship on the road and while traveling. Tons of great information for you in part two. So if you're listening to this live on the day that it first came out, make sure to join us tomorrow for part two. And if you're listening in the future, That's perfect because you can roll right into part two with Warren and Betsy. It's all about relationships. If you want to learn more about them, if you want to check out their website, I urge you head on over to marriedwithluggage.com. 
And thank you everyone for tuning in today, for supporting us, for making us the number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. And until tomorrow, happy free travels. <laughs>